Hi, I'm Frank Tissia Burns, and this is 360 North. I don't think it's a stretch to say that aliens have gotten more and sometimes even a fairer representation in pop culture than indigenous people. So I was excited when I heard about a new Inuk Marvel character being added to the Champions comic series. Her name is Amka Aliak, and she's also known as Snowguard. At the same time though, I was a little skeptical, because often companies have added characters like these in the name of diversity without ever going that extra mile to actually consult with the people they're supposed to represent. In this case, Jim Zub, a writer at Marvel, collaborated with Nyla Inuksuk, who's originally from Aglulik, and now works in Toronto within geek culture, as she puts it. Together, they created Snowguard to give an accurate representation of a young, modern Inuk woman. I'm excited to have both Jim and Nyla on the show to chat about Snowguard, of course, but also about how pop culture is changing today. Jim, Nyla, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, So I want to start off uh, with you, Nyla. In a recent interview I saw, you had mentioned that uh, Inuit culture was often presented nowadays as something kind of of the past as opposed to something that is still currently happening. And I was wondering why you think that is. Um, I think with with that in particular, I was referring to when you see Inuit culture within galleries. Okay. And, and certainly when I, uh, living in Toronto, where I am now, that's kind of the closest connection I have to Inuit culture, because there's a just a really small Inuit community here. And a lot of the time that we're actually meeting around the arts. And in the galleries, when you're seeing Inuit art, and you're seeing um, even things like artifacts or tools or clothing and then also the and the carvings it just kind of presents as something that's almost like um trying to preserve this thing that's lost so that's why i just find this kind of thing to to be exciting mm-hmm. no that's fair i i wonder about you jim was that kind of your impression of it as well before actually embarking on this process I mean, I think, you know, for me, I was looking at it from a mythological point of view as, as kind of a cool way to build something different for a character. And I didn't really have a kind of a frame of reference in that regard. I wasn't sure what, you know, what the possibilities were until I started digging in and doing that research. And that's, what's really kind of interesting about it. You know, exactly what Nyla was sort of saying is this idea. I think that people sort of look and say, oh, you know, that's the way Inuit culture was, that they're lost and and you're looking for artifacts instead of saying, no, this is still a vibrant thing that is available and ongoing. You know what I mean? So I guess to to actually just pick up on that, Jim, can you kind of help walk me through the process of what it was like to create this character? Um, sure. in, in the reading that I was doing, I, I'm still unsure kind of where the idea came from and who made that decision. Um, well, initially, you know, Working at Marvel, I've been at Marvel doing different projects since 2014. And so, uh, you know, over time, any kind of creative relationship, you build up trust. You build up trust with an editor, you know, with the publisher, with the creative team and so on. And so all the different kinds of projects I've done, almost every single one of them, you're working on other people's characters. You're you're building on the big, broad Marvel universe. You're sort of saying, okay, this is the sandbox. Here are the toys. You know, we try and play with them and do cool things with them. But at the end of the day, you're not generally generating new stuff as much. Mm -hmm. But over time, you know, you do. You start to come up with new little things. And as I moved through my projects and started working on a book like The Avengers, 
we created new villains, we created new kind of scenarios and kind of got my feet wet with that. And it was really an exciting prospect to be able to say, okay, we're going to start to build little new parts of the Marvel universe. And when the potential came up to do champions, which is this kind of young and vibrant team of heroes, uh, representing kind of a new generation of superheroes in the Marvel universe, uh, I didn't just want to pick up what was there. I wanted to, I wanted to add to it. And so for me, it was like, okay, if I'm going to make a new hero and this is my chance to do that, let's make a Canadian, you know, I'm Canadian. Sure. That's Mm -hmm. my maple syrup agenda. We're going to do this like (laughs) Canadian content and make something cool, but that doesn't mean it has to be someone from Southern Ontario or someone from, you know, whatever. A lumberjack, essentially. A lumberjack, yeah. (laughs) This isn't going to be, you know, this kind of thing. We can do something really different here and put the spotlight in a different area of the country that maybe hasn't had that kind of um, spotlight before. And so for me, it was like, I thought it would be neat to do an Indigenous character, particularly someone from the North. And that was my initial sort of idea with a bit of a, a kind of a mystical bent because that's a particular power set that the team didn't already have. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I sort of started with as my base. I wanted it to be uh, a woman, uh, both because I think it's good to have gender parity on the team and also because I thought that would also give us something a little bit different to explore. And then I started, uh, I put the initial idea out to my editor and he liked the idea. So then it was about hunkering down and doing the research and, and, you know, making sure that this was viable, not just as a initial brainstorm, but through to a real character that had conflict, that had an interesting personality and, and drama that we could mine for cool storytelling. And so that's when I started to reach out and, um, through a mutual friend of ours, uh, I got to meet Nyla. Okay, so you uh, you two hadn't known each other beforehand. No, not at all. Was it was it hard to kind of convince the team to get on board? Was it hard to convince people at Marvel to get on board with this idea? Um, I think you know, in retrospect, now I think Marvel's shocked at the response uh, and the amount of kind of media play we've gotten from it, and I'm shocked as well. But uh, no, everyone was on board with the concept. They, you know, I could justify it in terms of, look, this is something different. It's an area of the team that we can fill out. It's also not just kind of the same old, more American superheroes. We can sort of broaden and make this a, a more global team. And that's really been, as a whole, the Champions has quite a diverse cast. And so that's kind of been their mandate since uh, the beginning. And so this kind of built on that foundation, even if it's an area of the world and an ethnicity that hasn't been used before. How about for you, Nyla, once you came on board, what was the process like? Yeah, well, I just got, I'd gotten an email from our friend, Hope Nicholson, who's, she's an independent uh, comics publisher. Uh, So I had known her for years. And so she had, I guess, heard from Jim that he was kind of looking for someone or, or was kind of creating this character. So she reached out to me and I, I was excited. Um, I was also a little like nervous that might be, you know, might be a stereotype of an indigenous person, Mm -hmm. um, or that the consultation process wasn't something that felt genuine because that kind of, these kind of like consultation things from people outside of the indigenous community happens regularly. So I'm always a little hesitant, but um, I thought the idea of a Marvel character that is Inuk was really exciting. And so, um, I was really curious to hear what, what was going on and it, 
seemed like uh, Jim was really doing, putting in a lot of effort to make sure that he had, you know, an understanding of the world, but also um, just that he has uh, an Inuk person join the team um, was really important. And I mean, at this point, she didn't have a name, powers. I, I think that there was still discussion about whether she would be a female or more of a gender fluid character. So it was really um, at the very early stages, it wasn't. It, it wasn't like I was coming on to approve um, of, something that was already done. Essentially, yeah, yeah. I wasn't there just to kind of check boxes and and give the thumbs up. And that was really important to me as well. Is that the, exactly what Nyla said? That we, if we were going to be there, let's get someone involved on the ground floor because I don't want to do a bunch of development. And then either have to roll things back or, you know, kind of have to awkwardly wedge it. So let's talk as early as we can. You know, let's smash some of my preconceived notions and and figure out what's going to make the best story. <laughs> what preconceived notions were smashed? Um, I, I don't know that I had like an extensive list of things. I honestly just sort of went in open minded. I'd done some reading initially, you know, on sort of in a myth or, you know, stories of the North and things like that. And you get a certain broad sense of animism and, and elements like mm -hmm. that and as part of the culture. But I didn't want, I didn't just want to have that encyclopedic bullet point kind of knowledge. I wanted to talk more about what's it like living up there? What's the social structure like? What are the, you know, like what's different, but also what's the same? Because the way that people are going to attach to, you know, AMCA and the way that they're going to understand this character is also how they see themselves in her struggles. That leads into a really like good line of questioning that I, I want, but I have a, a couple of other things to touch on first. Um, Jim, you had mentioned the reaction. Yes. I, I think based on what I've seen has been mostly positive so far. Would, would you both agree with that? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The vast majority of the the interactions I've had have been fantastic. The social media stuff's been great. Uh, people have been just really, really excited. It was a little bit nerve wracking because, like I said, it seemed to come on really fast. Like I was just finishing up my run on Avengers. The Infinity War movie was coming out, and we announced this character that same week. And so it was like, from a media point of view, I think there was this like, hey, the biggest movie in the world is the Avengers. This Canadian guy writes, co-writes the Avengers, and he made a new Canadian superhero, and she's indigenous. So it was just like this kind of confluence of stuff that was all coming together. Mm -hmm. I think, Nyla, you mentioned actually getting some feedback from, from Pang, right? A, a teacher or class or something? Yeah. So I heard from a teacher, he had brought the first issue to his classroom and kind of shown them the comic. And when he did, and, and I think he just kind of told them about the, about Amka, that they, a bunch of them wanted to write letters because he, he essentially knew that he would be able to get in touch with me. So I got a bunch of letters. I got a bunch of, uh, drawings, um, some questions, uh, from some of the kids. One was just, you know, does Amka know how to drive a snowmobile, um, <laughs> and things like that. And some really sweet ones about, you know, that they couldn't wait until after school to go exploring for the, the hidden building in Pang. It was, it was really great. And so, yeah, it was wonderful to hear that feedback. I think there was, um, kind of what was to be expected. A few, a few, mostly from within the indigenous community, just some kind of on social media, some questions about the project, 
that I wasn't totally surprised by. I, I think I, I'd seen a little bit of that, but I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. Uh, yeah, it was just, I think that audiences now, more so than even five years ago, but certainly, you know, 10, 20 years ago, audiences are, are curious about who's making the content that they're consuming. And especially when it comes to Indigenous uh, content, in, in Canada, there's a lot of discussion about cultural appropriation, what that means. Um, and that's discussed in fashion and in film. So that it, I'm familiar with that discussion because that's kind of the world that I come from uh, in, uh, in terms of film. And for the most part, I produce virtual reality content. And so that's something that's discussed a lot. So when we had an Inuk superhero in a Marvel universe, I knew that some of those questions would be asked from within the community and also from just, you know, non-Indigenous readers that were interested is this idea of like, who was Inuk on, was there an Inuk person involved? Were mm -hmm, they paid? Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was mostly things like that, but you know, not, nobody openly, everyone seemed to be excited about the actual character. Um, and it was really more of just like people kind of questioning the process. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was one of the, my first thoughts as well is because you kind of see this and it's happened in the past before without actually going and doing the consultation, going that extra step. And even when it comes down to like money and profits, people having the, the reticence of, being like, okay, this is great for from a representation side, but is anything actually going back to the communities that are actually being represented? Like, is that a fair portrayal of of some of the not criticism, but some of the feedback that that you'd gotten? Yeah, um, I think that there's one one person in particular asked about if profits go back to the community. That's usually not something that I've seen come up a lot. I know with with film um, and even with virtual reality in the past, just with my own experience, I, I worked on a project called Sesqui and we filmed across Canada, including in some Indigenous communities uh, for 360 film. And after that was released, I went back to one of the communities in Northern Ontario and did some uh, some workshops on 360 filming and left behind some headsets and some 360 cameras and, and work like that. Um, it's a little bit different when it's comic books like we're not and we're not actually kind of accessing the community certainly i think what is an important discussion is that you know when it comes to telling our stories as an indigenous community we're often asked to kind of be brought on to projects as cultural consultants and in a way that's not particularly um seen as a collaboration mm. um and you know, a lot of the time that's done for free and that's a long, kind of a longstanding tradition. Um, it actually is interesting to me to, to see that that debate is happening online because those are, those are definitely issues that have happened with, with indigenous communities and their stories in the past. I think with this one, uh, I know it's myself, but like my involvement and, you know, my access to resources and, and knowledge of the North. I mean, all of these, even the community that it's set in, um, that's the community where my nephews live. Mm -hmm. I've visited there many times. So it's, you know, a place that's close to me. I think that it's important that those discussions happen, but it, it's been interesting seeing how it's kind of crossed over with comics as well. 
I'm wondering from your perspective, Jim, was that something that, like those discussions that Nina was talking about, was that something that you had thought about throughout the process that you were expecting? I wasn't sure exactly. Uh, well, to be honest with you, I didn't think we would have the kind of visibility on this. I wasn't doing it as a media spectacle, if that makes any sense. Like, I, you know, obviously I, everyone creates stuff because they want people to see it. But at the end of the day, it was like, I'm going to do this story. Let's make this character. I think this would be cool. Sometimes comic stuff can really hit the mainstream. And I know with the movies, obviously it does. There's a visibility element there. But a regular monthly series, it's not necessarily going to hit the same kind of mainstream media element. So I had in my head, like, I want to make sure I do this right for my own knowledge and for my own sake, because I, I think it's important. And I think that it's, if we're going to do this and I screw it up, you know, I feel like that's a disservice to, to that particular culture and it, it makes it a weaker story. And I've done, um, I have another comic book series called Wayward that I do that's set in Japan and we use a lot of Japanese mythology. And so I've worked with a couple of researchers on that. And the artist that I work with is also living over in Japan. And so we have a pretty extensive kind of research process that I go through. We're using real locations. We're using real mythology kind of updated and brought into the modern world and all this kind of stuff. And so I was used to that kind of process and I wanted to sort of pivot it into some of my superhero work and see if we could do something sort of similar with this, where we would take the basis of the real thing and kind of generate new kind of super heroic story based on that kind of stuff, you know, and, and in a broader sense, that's what like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee did with Thor. I mean, you know, Thor is not the Norse God and there's tons and tons of differences, but even using that mythological base gave the story that much more presence. And so you're like, well, can you do that with another culture? Can we sort of play with those sorts of elements and see if there's some, the germ of cool characters and, and great storytelling, you know? Um, so I want to get into the comics a little bit, I guess, a quick spoiler alert for, for listeners if they haven't seen them yet. But um, Amka is first seen in issue 19. Is that right? That's right. Champions 19. And so now there's 19, 20, and I think 21 just came out today or is, is on stands today, I guess. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Good timing. So I want to preface this a little bit in that I know absolutely zero about comic books. I, I haven't read any, <laughs> but uh, you were nice enough to send them to me. And I, I read uh, all three issues and was honestly blown away. I, I think they were super entertaining for one. And it was, uh, it was really interesting. Oh, thank um, you. The opening scene for where Emka comes in was really interesting to me. And it essentially hits on a problem of lack of consultation and consent and kind of land sovereignty in the north, Amka and a friend are kind of looking around and investigating this new facility that's cropped up out of Pang. And she says, no one in town knew this place was going up. No one approved it. And I, I mean, one, was that like a conscious decision to kind of go that route right off the bat? Um, and where did you yeah, see this? I mean, Champions as a whole, like I've taken over uh, as, for, as the writer of Champions. So the previous 18 issues were written by Mark Wade, who's a good friend of mine. And, and I took over the series and we talked at length. And I'm not going to be the same writer he is. But still, the basis of the series was that this young team of heroes are hopeful and they are fighting for their future and they're fighting against the kinds of things that 
youth nowadays are trying to address, whether that's the impact of technology on our lives or or the types of hopes and fears that you know young people have now. And part of that is about appropriation. Part of that is about losing culture. Part of that is about uh, sovereign borders and all those kinds of things. And so if we can make superhero stories that are still exciting and action-packed and dramatic, but also just like the classic Marvel stories reflect their time. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a saying that Stan Lee had where he said, you know, Marvel is the world outside your window. It's not Metropolis or Gotham. It's New York City. It's London, England. It's real places and situations that when you go into Manhattan, you imagine Spider-Man swinging through those streets, you know? So if we can take kind of relevant themes and ideas of now and put that into our stories, that's very much in the Marvel tradition. Uh, for you, Nyla, were you, did you have a hand in the writing at all, or was it mainly just kind of consultation on Emka's character? Yeah, so it was actually really interesting at first to kind of figure out the workflow of of how a comic gets made. It's something that's totally new to me, and it's a lot faster than any workflow that I've ever worked with. So we were discussing story and, you know, the as the, the look of, Amka's coming together and I'm providing visual references and, you know, it's getting sent to an artist in South Africa. And it's just, you know, this kind of very quick process. And then it's a whirlwind (laughs) where where I'm like literally sharing photos of like tattoos and stuff. And then the very, the very next morning, um, there's a bunch of drawings with Amka and she's got the tattoos and all of these things. Like it was very fast And then I was sent the scripts. I didn't know that that's kind of how the process is, is that, you know, Jim writes these scripts and we had discussed what her superpowers might be. So all of these kind of ideas that we had discussed kind of had been put into the, into the script, you know, there's a chance there to kind of go through and see if, if there's anything that stands out and, you know, then you get the some of the artwork and then you get it colored and, and then there's like all of these moments where you can have some like last minute changes. So only now have Jim and I actually started uh, the process of writing a story together. OK. Um, and so it's kind of been, yeah, this really interesting learning curve. When you first saw scripts, did you end up bringing uh, any changes? Was there anything that you wanted to see reflected more or less or? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that happened, I mean, I guess I can, I can say is that in the very first panel, and this was kind of an example of how quick the, the speed of everything happened is I saw in the final drawings of the very first panel that Amka fe- is featured in, you can see trees. Oh, <laughs> that was something that for me, it was like, it's not something that you really notice, like without any coloring or anything like that. Then I was just like, Oh, those are though I think those are trees and it was kind of like are they and then looking at them I was like yeah they absolutely are and um and that was like but it had already at that point essentially there was nothing we could do um but certainly after that you won't see any trees in in any of the panels yeah and just some some spellings and um and and things like that for the most part it, nothing um inherent to the actual storyline has been um, needed to fix. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, in, in the story we're working on now. So I talked to Nyla about the fact that 
because Champions is a team of, of eight different characters, once Snowguard joins the team, we're in an interesting spot where it's an ensemble book, but we have this new character that we want to dig in and explore a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we're looking at doing is having an issue that's completely spotlighting on Amka, on Snowguard, her, not just her origin, because that happens in these three issues, but kind of who she was growing up and how she got to this place. And so I said, look, if we're going to do that one in particular, I would love to have you come on as an actual co-writer. Let's really dig deeper into the cultural aspects. Let's dig deeper in what it's like to live in the North. Instead of just the superhero team being there and leaving, let's do a story that's all about Amka in her own environment. And so that's kind of one of the things we're developing now alongside the regular stories. You know, I want Snowguard to just be a regular part of the team. And that was really important to me. Because what happens in a lot of cases is a superhero team will go to some exotic location, they meet a hero in that location, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. And then that character may or may not show up ever again if people go back there. And I was like, the best thing we can do is just have Snowguard be an ongoing part of the champions. That's She's just a teenager, you know, from a particular spot, and she's going to bring that point of view to the page. But she's not just a flyby kind of appearance, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I, I mean I probably should have asked this earlier, but <laughs> if if both of you could maybe expand on what uh, her actual power is and how how it comes to be. Sure. Um, do you want to take this one, Nyla, or do you want me to? Um, yeah, I'll give some I'll give some backstory, and then maybe you can describe it in more detail. But um, sure. One of the things that Jim and I had discussed, and this happened very early on, was the traditional belief system. So I kind of outlined this concept of sila, which essentially is um, this this belief in this life force that everything that is living, you know, is is has a, a life or a breath. And and sila directly translated to English means breath. And so these kind of spirits that guide the universe essentially are all part of this life force. And that then we kind of were talking about shamans and how and myself, I'm great granddaughter of a of one of the last shaman of the Arctic. And the shaman are, you know, people that can interpret the the spirits, but they can also have a certain amount of control. So then when we were kind of thinking about that and that how that could relate to Emka, it was that we kind of thought of this idea of having a certain amount of control. And and because animals, of course, are part of this life force, we wanted that to be part of it as well. And if Jim, maybe you want to kind of expand. Yeah. So it was sort of, to me, I kind of looked at it and said, okay, how can we take this idea of, of Sila and almost create this conflict within Amka that she's a, she isn't sure what she believes in. She isn't sure if she, you know, she wants, she has elements of kind of a traditional life that she has had up in, in Nunavut, but she's also a young teenage girl who wants to see more of the world and have those experiences. And that the symbolic kind of thing for me was that when this, the spirit kind of ends up moving through her or essentially saving her life in the, over the course of this first story, it imbues her with this energy. And now just like in in a very you know manifestation of a symbolic thing, she has got part of her past that she's carrying with her. She's got part of her people's you know kind of traditions that she has mm-hmm. to carry with her and ratify with who she wants to be and kind of her own 
future, you know, in the way that a lot of, whether it's an immigrant or First Nations people are trying to bridge the past and the present, trying to figure out who they are and what elements of a modern life they want and what elements of a traditional life. I think, you know, that's a very potent story. And so her power kind of comes out in that way that she has this life force energy and she can use it to transform herself with kind of animism and and uh, take on animalistic traits. But she's also going to be able to sense energy flow and she's going to be able to manipulate and move kind of larger magical forces that are uh, you know going to be happening in the upcoming stories. Jim, you mentioned this a little bit, but I'd love to get your thoughts as well, Nyla. Kind of the role for comics and pop culture in the larger context of some of these discussions that are being had in be, be they political or cultural or whatever. It's a fascinating time right now in terms of comics as a whole. We're going through such a, I mean, comics have never been bigger in terms of their visibility. Um, and that's a lot of it spun out of the ability for, you know, media companies like Disney to make films that now can take full advantage of the kind of special effects and the visual scope of what's been in these books. And on a month to month basis, these big, crazy ideas that previously felt like you could never see them on the big screen or the small screen, you know, TV or movies. Uh, and, and the strong moral core that's in a lot of these superheroic stories about big things and telling them on a stage in a dramatic way that I think speaks to, you know, generation after generation. And it's, um, it's a wild time to sort of be involved with this stuff and to realize that although a comic may only have four or five, six people on a team and where, uh, like Nyla said, this stuff happens fast on a monthly comic, we are turning this stuff around very, very quickly, but that it can have a huge kind of rippling effect every time one of these stories comes out, if it's done well, or if it kind of grabs hold of the, of the zeitgeist, you know? How about for you, Nyla? Um, yeah, sorry. What was the, what was the original question to Jim? <laughs> no worries. Um, essentially kind of, what do you see uh, the role for, for comics and other pop culture within the conversation of broader discussions, be they like political or cultural or something like that? For me, what's been really exciting is that through my other work, I'm kind of exploring these themes of indigenous futurisms and comic books and AMCA fit so well into that. Um, and it's kind of this kind of an artistic movement that has its roots in Afrofuturism. So to kind of be a part of this world, this superhero world with an indigenous character has been, you know, really interesting to explore. Um, I'm also at the same time working on a, a sci-fi movie with a group of girls based up in Nunavut, like a 2D feature. Awesome. Yeah. And it, and they're actually from Pang as well. So it all kind of is like feeding into, into each other. But yeah, this see, seeing representation, indigenous representation in geek culture is, I think, really important. And with indigenous futurisms, it's this idea that we were not even really supposed to exist in the present mm. if this indoctrination that came with colonization had succeeded. So to kind of imagine ourselves in the future or with superpowers, or, you know, interacting with aliens. It all is a bit of a, just an empowering thing to think about. The the indigenous kind of futurism um, umbrella, I guess now, I think there's also a podcast, if I'm not mistaken, if not more than one, that I think Chelsea Vowell co-hosts, which is Métis in Space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nice to see more than one resource, I guess, kind of get into this. And I think that that's super interesting what you bring up. 
of indigenous people not supposed to be around today, let alone in the future. So I don't know, that's something really deep to, to think about. Is that one of your motivations for your work, Nyla? Yeah, but I also think there's a, a real importance in preserving the culture. And we know that a lot of work goes into that. And when I mentioned the galleries and that sort of thing earlier, I mean, that is all about preservation of the traditional culture. But I think it's also really exciting to see how it can evolve and move and grow. And, you know, in order for it to survive, I think that that's really important, that it is this living, breathing thing. And whether that means bringing mythology into a comic book or, you know, I've got a friends of mine, like a tribe called Red, mm-hmm. that use traditional powwow music into their into their music and so they're kind of really expanding and preserving the culture in a unique way so i think that the same kind of thing with what we're doing with the comic book but also the indigenous futurism movement is keeping these traditions alive but that means shifting and changing them a bit um going back to the comics as the champions are moving through the story they come face to face with master of the world i think is his name yeah he's got this super corny name he's this <laughs> villain that um a guy named john byrne created in the early 80s he's this very dramatic d- dictatory very classic kind of super villain who calls himself the master of the world like you know there's that saying uh, dress for the job you want to have or whatever <laughs> like he's convinced that he's this alien human hybrid guy who is convinced that he's going to be the master of the world and he's going to take everything over with this alien technology i'm glad i'm not the only one who thought his name was a little lame oh it's well the champions think it's lame as well they say it right in the book they're like this guy's a ridiculous yes <laughs> um a bit of a weird question but i'm wondering what his role is in the context that you kind of wrote this comic Mm-hmm. I mean, he represents this idea of technology over morality. You know what I mean? Like he'll do what he thinks is right. And, you know, kind of judge jury and executioner of, of using the things at his resources to, to execute it. And, and that because he thinks he's a genius and because he believes that the ends justify the means, He's not going to consult anyone. He's not going to look for their approval. He's going to manipulate and utilize the resources in a very abstract way. And as long as he feels like he can justify it, nothing else matters. And so I think that that's very relevant to the ways that governments, people, corporations do things a lot of times. They look at the end result or they look at whatever, the the share price, or they look at you know, how great it will be when it's all said and done without thinking of the the economic or the, uh, you know, the ecological results of what they're doing, let alone the moral results. And, you know, that to me feels very relevant and, and of this time that we live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was essentially my reading as well. He really was kind of a, a standing metaphor for exactly what you were saying, be it government or corporations or... But what was important to me as well is that he creates a kind of compelling argument that the yeah. that the kids are pulled into initially because what he represents is and his sort of goal is hey look we can stop global warming we can rebuild the glaciers everything's going to be great uh we can fix this in a very broad sweeping strong manner and when someone has that kind of confidence and the ability to execute upon it it's very enticing you know what mm-hmm. i mean we're going to solve a huge problem and you don't have to do anything. Just let me go. 
And so the, the teenagers don't know any better and they see this huge ecological problem that they want to see dealt with. And so they're swept up kind of in his charisma. They're swept up in results over the much harder thing to do, which is to find consensus, which is to bring everyone into the conversation, which is to, you know, to be a part of a larger global culture instead of just a singular focused decision-making process. That section really stood out to me as well is I think you guys did a really good job in the little knowledge that I have and can share in the sense of it, it was a really nuanced point of view to be like, I am going to help, but the payoff, the payoff is terrible. If, if, you know, if, if you're following his, his line of thinking of willing to take over the world and all this. Well, it's this weird thing of, he didn't even just want to take over the world because he's so long livid. He said, this won't even be your problem. Yeah. yeah. I'll take over the world after you're gone. I'll take over the world in centuries. And the heroes are looking at each other and going, well, that's kind of future heroes problems, but we need to deal with pollution. We need to deal with global warming now. And this guy's going to solve it. Maybe we just let him go. You know what I mean? Maybe <laughs> we just let him do the thing. The best villains or the best kind of drama is created not just by mustache twirling, good versus evil, but this idea of even if you disagree with what this character is doing, you can see how other people could agree with it under the right circumstances. The way that I also read the champion's reaction to that of them just kind of being like, We'll see how it goes. We'll let it go for now. And it'll be future champions right. <laughs> problem. I kind of see that as a reaction maybe from Southerners or other people when it comes to issues in the North of not getting the full perspective. Let, let's say taking the instance of be it like land sovereignty and things like that, where they see an initial problem, but don't actually see the history of taking over lands, no consent, no consultation. I, I don't know if you were trying to go for that, but that's kind of where my mind went. Absolutely. And, and, but it, it's that catch 22 of, well, someone in the past did that. So it's not my fault, not my problem, but equally these people have their lives have been impacted and generations of people have been impacted. So something needs to be done. Something needs to be addressed. You have to, you can't just pretend it, 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 it didn't happen. There's an end result there. You know what I mean? And this mm -hmm. idea that, well, that was in the past. This is what's been done. You got to live with it. And you're like, okay, but how are our generations of people supposed to just move on and pretend it's not an issue or pretend that everything is okay? Because it's not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for you, Nyla, I don't want to put you on the spot, but is that a mentality that, that you've come up against? Yeah, well, certainly in First Nations communities, it's actually this idea of seven generations and you think of yourself as like also the seventh generation, mm. essentially that the th when you're making decisions, you know, you have to think seven generations ahead. But even when you're up in the Arctic, you can really see it's, it's such a dramatic climate that you can really see the effects of things like global warming from just a few generations ago. So when it comes to those stakes, they're going to be raised for someone like AMCA. Now with AMCA being part of the team, I'm wondering what you both hope to see her character evolve in, I guess, past this next issue where we kind of get her backstory and her upbringing. You can go first if you want, Nala, yeah. Yeah, I think that it'll be kind of interesting. You know, she's she. all of the characters are all really young and her more than the rest are having to leave 
behind their world because it's just a, such a different environment that she's grown up in. And, uh, and you see that when, uh, when she's speaking with her mother. But I think that that's going to be something that's going to be interesting to figure out because she's, of course, leaving the North. And that means this sense of community and family and food, which is really important, too. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's like a successful character in kind of the broader Marvel universe is one that carries on after the initial creators sort of have their hand in it. And so the ideal for me is like, we've got a bunch of track, we want to do some cool things with this character, and set her up in a way that makes the dramatic potential clear and makes her a you know, vibrant and exciting part of, of the broader Marvel universe and that she inspires other people so that they want to use her in their stories so that yes, she has special, you know, aspects that, and she represents something that isn't getting a lot of kind of airplay, if you want to put it that way in terms of comics, but that people just become excited to read her story because she's a great character and that whether or not, you know, if you're indigenous, great you love this character, but if you're just a reader, you're excited to see what she's doing because, because she's great. Cause she's got a great personality. She's got a cool power set and she's going to do really important things as part of the bigger team. Um, in, in both your answers, it kind of prompted something I'm totally just thinking out loud, but where it's been left off is her joining the team and then them going off to where, wherever their next location is to do what superheroes do. And I'm wondering how do you tow the line if there is one to be towed in the sense of you can only evolve by leaving your community? So I guess an easier way to, to, to ask that is how important is it for AMCA and the team to actually go back to the North every once in a while to kind of show that there's, that there's ongoing, uh, not problems, but ongoing issues, ongoing life in the North as well and portray that aspect? I mean... I think it's it's a tough balance, right? Because like you're sort of saying, this idea of leaving, you know, I, I think as a as a young person, that idea of traveling away from home and expanding your horizons is really crucial. I think it's a great thing to show and I think it's a great thing to explore in the storytelling. And then having those little touchstone moments where she's back in the community or she's engaging and, and sort of seeing how she's changed and seeing how the community has changed, you know, mm-hmm. again, with like eight characters, we're trying to do that with everyone. So I have to do that with Miles Morales. I have to do that with Riri Williams and Sam Alexander. And so the spotlight falls on each of those characters, depending on the particular issue. And that's one of the tough things you want to move everyone's little soap operatic story forward. And every so often the light comes, you know, directly on a particular character for, for a story. This is her kind of premiere. So she gets a lot of kind of airplay and focus. And then we sort of pull back and we'll see some of this stuff in, in subtle ways happening in the background or happening in the backdrop of other people's stories. And then when the spotlight comes back on her, really show again where she's at, you know, what she's learning and how she's changing with these experiences. Is that something important for, for you, Nyla, to kind of portray that going back to the community as well? Um, yeah, I think that, I think it's just, um, it would certainly be something that would be important to the character. So I think to kind of maintain that authenticity, I think it's it's nice to have her go back. And it's it's a big deal for everyone to kind of, especially teenagers, to figure out what they're meant to be doing. Um, and I feel like at that age, you're kind of, you've 
feel like it's all very urgent to kind of figure those things out. And so just the fact that she is a, a teenager and for Indigenous people and Indigenous young people, you know, they're kind of living between two worlds because mm-hmm. we do want to show Amka as, an, you know, a normal teenager and she kind of wears a mix of contemporary and traditional style clothing. And so her struggling with this issue of identity and then also is amplified, of course, because she's a superhero on top of it. Addressing that and her desire to also be back home is is important. I think that's pretty much it for me, unless there's anything else that uh, that either one of you would like to add. You know, for me, at the end of the day, like the reason why I love writing superhero stories is because I want to 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 build stuff that inspires people in the way that I was inspired growing up and the kinds of characters and the bigger themes that they were able to tell in those stories of the comics that I read as a kid, they had a real effect on me. And I think that people find symbolism in their fiction. They find not necessarily their morality, but they it can open up your mind to in all kinds of interesting ways and come at particularly young readers, I think, and open them up to bigger questions about moral values in a way that doesn't have to be like straight out finger wagging or, or edicts telling them what the rules are, that they can see a broader kind of story to be told. And so if we do our job right, it can be exciting, it can be entertaining, and it can you walk away with something sort of sticking in the back of your head that you need to think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. It was really nice having you both on. Thanks so much. It was really fun. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of 360 North. Thanks to Jim and Nyla for taking the time to chat, and thanks to you for listening. As always, I'd love to get your feedback, and you can do that by sending me an email and leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. All of that will also help us get new listeners to the show. While you're there, you can also subscribe in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Links to all of that are going to be in the show notes. Right now, the show is supported 100% by listeners like you. And if you feel like you can chip in, you can go to patreon.com slash T-H-R-E-E-6-0-N. Every little bit helps, even a dollar a month. Music for 360 North was written by Simon Léger, and the sound is courtesy of JP and Pop-Up Podcasting. With that, see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Thanks.